Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. My purpose has always been local. There's so much that we can do as a local community. Portland has a great quality of life. Yes, we have our issues here, but Portland has done well to emerge from this pandemic still with our core spirit intact. I am a queer, poor black kid from the streets. That is literally the last type of person that you would expect to be in a position of power. And yet I've never allowed any obstacle to set me back. All right. Uh, today we have a very special guest. Uh, it was actually a very good interview. I think you will find it quite entertaining. Our guest today is Cameron Witten. Cameron is a well-known name in Portland. In fact, I wanted to read an excerpt from, he just won the Skidmore Prize. And so I want to re uh, read an excerpt from a Willamette Week story highlighting it, just to give you a flavor of who Cameron is. He's upset that Ben is reading this. So uh, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good key up. If the Portland nonprofit world has a true superstar, it's Cameron Whitten. They've spent the last decade on the front lines in the fight for social justice, holding hunger strikes on the steps of City Hall, campaigning for LGBTQ rights, and even running for elected office, including the mayorship. But they've made their greatest impact as the founder of Brown Hope, an organization dedicated to supporting Oregon's communities of color through a variety of programs and initiatives, most notably the Black Resilience Fund, which last year managed to distribute $2 million in financial assistance for Black Portlanders in need. So I think that does a good job of capturing Cameron's early days in Portland. He's lived in Portland for 13 years, and he started as an activist with Occupy Portland and ran for mayor. And then over the years, kind of got involved in other civic issues. He was also, you might know him from running for the Metro Council in 2020 and running a very strong campaign for that race. And then following that election, he kind of took over full-time as the CEO of Brown Hope, which again, as we mentioned, millions of dollars in, in an annual operating budget and went from all volunteer to 13 paid employees in just a year. So a really impressive effort that he's done there. But he's one of the most interesting people in Oregon politics, I think it's fair to say. Alex, what were your thoughts or takeaways from today's interview? Yeah, and it doesn't surprise me that people like him. And I would say he's unpolished. And by unpolished, I don't mean like he's not a legit person with the, like a good appearance and things like that. But, you know, he just basically says what he says because he believes it. And I think that that is really appealing to a lot of people because as we joke on this podcast and we have a lot of politicians on it, some people are clearly very polished with their one-liners that maybe even have been poll tested that they think are <laughs> going to resonate really well with a specific audience. And I think that Cameron, I mean, if you listen to his podcast, it sounds like he totally throws that out the window too. Like <laughs> he just doesn't really care about that. And I think that that is, you know, it's really appealing to a lot of people to just kind of have that real personal touch and that, you know, oh, this is an actual person I'm listening to who's trying to get my vote. It's not like a machine robot politician speaking. So I also thought that the Black Resilience Fund thing was really fascinating because one thing about Cameron is he clearly just drives into action. It's not like he kind of sits there and complains about the situation. Like, you know, as a conservative, it's fascinating that he was basically able to raise $3 million plus for a community that he really cares about and not only distribute funds to help people like private funds, but also build a sense of community around it. So I think it's a really interesting project that he's engaging in. And I was glad we were able to have him on the pod. You'll have to look for where he pushes back on our questions a little bit <laughs> at the beginning. And then by the end, when we ended the call, I told him, I was like, that sounded like poetry the way that you delivered it. So a couple of highlights that you can look forward to. But thank you, everybody, for listening. 
if you're downloading this on the day it is live, then it is the day before Thanksgiving. So we at the podcast are very grateful for you and grateful to have your support week after week as we continue to grow in our downloads and listeners. So thanks for being part of this. And we hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving and we'll see you back here next week. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy thanks, the everyone. Episode. All right, everyone. Cameron Witten, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Every day is a gift. Ben, Alex, <laughs> thank you so much for having me here today. Well, I want to start with something that you told me you didn't want to talk about. Uh, so, wow, <laughs> I feel so welcome already on this thing. Well, in de- in my defense, I think this is a very cool thing and interesting thing about you. But when I told you that I thought this would be something interesting to talk about, you're like, that's boring. Everybody asks me about that. So we're just going to get it out of the way at the front end and then dive into some other topics. Mm. But basically... There's been a lot written about you. People can Google Cameron Witten and they're going to get a bunch of different articles basically from the last 10 years in Portland. And the earlier articles basically are Cameron Witten, the activist. You were gained national headlines for the hunger strike, for Occupy Portland. You ran for mayor at a time where I think even you would say you weren't a serious contender for mayor. How dare you? <laughs> and then you fast forward <laughs> to the end of that. I seriously end. contended for that seat. Thank you. <laughs> okay, fair. I, I already you- made your controversy on the pod. Five <laughs> yeah. But then we get to the well, end. Make of- me bring 21-year-old Cameron up in this interview. <laughs> this is about to get I would. Cool. I would love to talk to 21-year-old Cameron. <laughs> but to my point, at the end. Aren't you supposed of- to be like the face of the youth and saying give youth a chance and they're serious candidates for office? Dang, I just got triggered. Fast forwarding to the end of the <laughs> years, which is today, you ran a very viable race for Metro with some very impressive endorsements. You raised a bunch of money. You now run and you are the CEO, I believe, or executive director of uh, a very large nonprofit with what? How many millions of dollars is your op- annual operating budget? I mean, last year was three. Three million dollars. So a very substantial organization. I think 13 paid employees. 14. 14. You've hired someone since we last spoke. (laughs) So my question to you is, can you describe for people who are interested in your story, what was that evolution? Like what were the key moments or, or do you even see it as a difference in who you were then versus who you are now? How do you think about the last 10 years of your life? Mm, (laughs) 525,600 minutes. (laughs) How do you measure 10 years in a life? Talk about love. Sorry. <laughs> how, how long are we going to go with this? <laughs> My name is Cameron Witten, and I am a lot different than I was 10 years ago. And I guess the question for me feels a little bit like a non sequitur because hmm. who didn't change in 10 years? Who didn't find a way to get their life together and be a little more focused about who they are and what they want to do? Who knows? Maybe I'm overreaching and thinking that people don't mature over 10 years, but I think most people do. And I found a way to take all of my passions and to find ways to be more sustainable in that work and both sustainable with my impact, but also sustainable with my life. You know, it's not possible to starve yourself and camp out of city hall for 10 years. Like there was no way I could have done that as a strategy again and again, but I knew that I could make a lasting impact in this city. And I knew that meant that every year my strategy would be a little different. And so to a degree, I am not the person I was 10 years ago, but also to a degree, important degree, I am the same exact person I was 10 years ago. I believe everything that I've always stood for, whether that is justice, inclusion, representation, healing, and hope, 
and a radical transformation, first and foremost, none of that's changed over 10 years. Yes, my hair is gone. Yes, I <laughs> probably put on a couple more pounds since the hunger strike. I'm now a homeowner. You know, I went from being homeless 10 years ago to now being a homeowner. There are a lot of things that are different about my life, but I'd say the goalpost of my moral compass, it's never wavered. So, so Cameron, I actually, I have a question about that because I think something, uh, and you didn't say it exactly, but it gets to an interesting topic is you basically mentioned, you know, before you're like, I was doing more radical activism, right? No matter sort of what you are on the political spectrum. Like, I think most people think that a hunger strike is like, wow, that's a really intense step to take, no matter what the issue is that like, you care about this so much, you will literally deprive yourself of food. But I would say, like, I'm curious, have you gotten, as like this transformation has kind of happened, have you gotten any pushback from activists sort of on it? Like, Mm. oh, Cameron, you've, you know, become too establishment with this or like, you know, you're too in with the in crowd or something like that. I'm kind of like, have you gotten sort of that pushback? Like, because it it sounded like you're saying too, you think activism has actually been more successful kind of as it has transformed rather than the things that you were doing 10 years ago. Hmm. So I didn't say that, and I feel like this is a contentious interview. Um, (laughs) The hunger strike by itself, the Oregonian editorial board, you know, in the middle of my hunger strike, wrote an op-ed and said that I was a gadfly, a sideshow distraction, that all I wanted was attention and I wasn't committed to doing the real work, and that I was asking for three possible things that would never, ever, ever, ever happen in Portland. Mm. Well, fast forward eight years and all three of those impossible things happen. So I thank the Oregonian editorial board because now impossible odds are my favorite odds. So (laughs) anybody who wants to say, well, I was less effective back then is clearly not paying attention. I would say that my tactics have changed because my needs have changed and I am not as a young whippersnapper as I was before. I could not continue to sleep outside in the elements and not think about housing or thinking about my my long-term sustainability. Like I want to have a family someday. Yeah. And I believe that it, this is the natural way of life. As young people, we find ways to take that youthful energy into doing something good. And as we get older, we intentionally make changes to still have that energy put into the right direction, but also focus on other things in life. So I'm just really lucky that I had really good hunches. I had really good intuitions and I, I don't want to put it all towards you know luck, but I'm really proud to say that from a young age, from running for mayor to doing a hunger strike to doing a lot of other, you know, very unconventional in your face things that those all paid off for some reason or another. So it's interesting that even though I now have a 10 year track record of delivering results in the community, there's still this implication that things that I did 10 years ago were wrong or off or ineffective. Mm. But all I can say is that I'm a 10 year testimonial that I've been effective since day one and I'm only just getting started. I love that. And we're going to read in the intro, the full excerpt from Willamette week, but my favorite, my favorite, my favorite sentence is (laughs) if the Portland nonprofit world has a true superstar, it's Cameron Whitten. (laughs) So it's really funny. I just picked up my Skidmore price check (laughs) just a week ago and I was hanging out at the Willamette office. And I said, 
the very first time I ever was featured in the Willamette Week was during my hunger strike. And the Willamette Week was the one newspaper that refused to cover the hunger strike up until like day 30 or 50, I don't remember. And <laughs> the article was titled Ratlandia. And the very first sentence said, Cameron Witten is on day 35 of a hunger strike outside of City Hall. And then the rest of this 500 word article was all about rats in Terry Shunk Plaza. What? <laughs> that doesn't even make, I'm confused. What was the linkage there? <laughs> they were accusing Occupy and my hunger strike of being the reason why there were more rats. In oh the my park. God. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not going to go there. <laughs> 2011 was a wild time. <laughs> so before I hand it back to Alex, I did, when we were researching for this interview, I looked at your website and you talked a little bit about mentorship and how mentorship has been important in your life and helped you. So I was curious if you would be willing to talk about like who's one or two of the most important in your political life mentors who helped you kind of understand the space, navigate. I think we probably both have our own answers for that. But for you, are there key mentors that you think have been like, I guess, impactful in how you've ended up where you've ended up? Mentorship of trusted leaders. I would say what has been interesting about my journey is that I refuse the conventional wisdom of you need to pick one thing and be good at it. I didn't. I decided I want to do all the things, all the things. <laughs> and I also sought wisdom from all the people. I'm a universalist at heart, and I believe that there is truth and beauty and power in every connection, in every conversation, in every perspective, no matter how uncomfortable it made me. And so when I think about the mentorship that I received, it was like dunking my brain into an ocean of experiences. And so I wish that I could pinpoint it to one person, but I got involved in so many causes, went to so many community events. There was a couple of years, I think between 2013 and 2016, where <laughs> the, <laughs> the phrase was, camera witness everywhere. I, I used to go to like 15 to 20 election night parties <laughs> on election nights. That, I still actually, I miss doing that because that I would still do that to this day. But um, yeah, I found ways to learn anywhere I was. Love that. Yeah. Titus, over to you. So Cameron, you have to tell us because you're running for Metro. No, uh, he ran for Metro. You ran for Metro. Been there, done that. <laughs> been, you've been there, you've done that. Why run for that position in particular? And I'm actually specifically curious, and maybe it's happening, who knows? Why not run for mayor again? Because we have a, I would say, a very unpopular mayor who's been it's a very poor job, which I don't know if anybody on this podcast, any of our listeners might not even disagree with that. But why, why did you... Spicy. The, uh, yeah, this is kind of like my toned down version of spicy. But yeah, just kind of curious, or we dive a little bit more into the issues, like why that position, what drew you to it? Thank you, Alex. It's a great question. So my purpose has always been local. There's so much that we can do as a local community, even as our nation, as our world is in gridlock and the national discourse is just being infected with this unending vitriol that is getting us almost nowhere. Really great work is happening at the local level. And our issues that we deal with as a community are increasingly regional. They're not just city or county or neighborhood. Mm -hmm. These are regional issues. And 
I have had the privilege to work with people from across the region over the last 10 years. And Metro is a really great government organization that touches on so many issues that are near and dear to my heart. And especially Metro is more and more being pushed into a purpose that it needs to grow into around being the regional stakeholder for these large regional issues that were not originally in its charter. And so there is a a reckoning around culture and purpose that Metro is dealing with. And as someone who's always been a change agent, who's always had a vision for the inevitability of the future, knowing that I could help steward Metro into the purpose that it's inevitably going to be drawn into. Uh, Housing is a great example where Metro has not traditionally been in that place, been in that area of work, but housing is a regional issue. And so how to help Metro do that. Pandemic response is a regional issue. Has Metro developed a pandemic resiliency plan? Maybe they have in the last year, but pre-COVID-19, they haven't. So there's a lot of issues that will continue to be impacting us on a regional level that my belief is that inevitably Metro is going to have to be a leader in. But also let's be very clear, Metro is an organization that's been, our government that's been around for a couple of decades and it has not represented the people who live in the districts. And, you know, my work, my life has been in North and Northeast Portland pretty much since I have been in Portland. And, you know, when I worked at Q Center, when I worked working at (laughs) Know Your City, um, all this work is based in North and Northeast. And this is the historic heart of the Black community. My home is in Piedmont in North and Northeast Portland. I know that Metro has been complicit in a lot of racial injustices. And my belief is that there needs to be someone with lived experience and also that professional experience who can help make a path forward for healing and reconciliation. And so that was the campaign that I ran. I ran a campaign as someone who you do not typically see with uh, elected official title in front of their names. I am a queer, poor black kid from the streets. That is literally the last type of person that you would expect to be in a position of power. And yet I've never allowed any obstacle to set me back I've taken every obstacle as an opportunity and as a springboard, both for myself, but to also bring the community along. That's all I have to promise. (laughs) There's nothing else that I really need to say as a political candidate. I let my track record, I let my vision, I let my story uh, speak for itself. And so I'm really proud of the campaign that we ran. The Metro campaign was unconventional from day one. We unfortunately lost a city commissioner with the city of Portland. Nick Fish, he died of cancer um, in the middle of his term. And the Metro Councilor for District 5, where I live, um, decided to run for city council. And again, that just happened in January of 2020. And so that meant that there were just four months for any candidate to put their name on the ballot and run. And so I was actually one of five candidates. So apparently there were five of us who had a (laughs) ridiculous idea to stop everything they were doing with their lives and run for office. And I was really proud of the campaign that we ran. We were not the first one to announce, but, you know, we were close second, I think. And we started the campaign with the most endorsements. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do believe for the primary, we had the most individual donations, but of course we weren't getting $10,000 checks like some other people (laughs) who got it from big companies or gave it to themselves. 
who's better here? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and well, and uh, and I think people have to remember too, like this was the COVID campaign. So I imagine you would have been out knocking doors, going to community event. This is how we, Cameron and I, were running at the same time, and like I felt like my campaign was deeply challenged by COVID. And I think like you, there's a small group of us. I think Lacey Beatty and Beaverton, who was successful, is in the same boat. Like young candidates who had the energy to go talk to voters just couldn't because COVID locked us all inside. Two days before March 13th, when the entire state shut down, I had over 10,000 pieces of door lit dropped off. Oh no. <laughs> and it was completely unusable. We couldn't even put stamps on it, try to remail it. Like we just spent a lot of money on door lit. We had spent a lot of time with the van and mapping out turf. We were about to do our kickoff canvas and then boom. Yeah. We will zoom out to why your loss at Metro might actually be a net positive for you because of some of the other things that it opened space for in your life. But before we get there, we <laughs> want to talk a little about policy and about Portland. It's a topic, obviously, that is getting a lot of uh, a lot of press in the Oregonian, Willamette Week, Mercury, etc. But I want to start with policing and public safety. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of narratives out there, but one that people are talking a lot about is Portland's setting the homicide record this year. The most homicides in a single year is this year. And Mayor Ted Wheeler, as well as other Democrats, are calling for an investment in more police officers. They're also calling for investments in non-police public safety officers and other investments. But there is a, a call for hiring, in some cases, hundreds of more police officers. And this is a pretty significant whiplash from 2020, where the sort of rallying cry was defund the police. And particularly in Portland, we had, you know, thousands and thousands of people showing up. I'm sure you were probably at some of those in Portland calling for police reform, defunding the police, et cetera. So I guess I'm curious, what do you make of this, this space that we're in? How do you think about the rise in homicides and the rise in crime? It's not just a Portland thing that's happening everywhere, but what is the alternative to hiring police officers that you favor? Unless that is something that you, you think about, like, how do you think about all of this? How much time do we have? We have exactly <laughs> 35 minutes left. So take it tricky, away. Tricky, tricky. So we're not going to get to everything. And I really encourage folks to listen to this podcast and to feel about this issue with an open heart. Because when we are talking about some of the hardest issues in our society, These are nuanced issues. These are multifactorial issues. If someone has heart disease, it's not just because their cholesterol is high or that it's it's genetically pre-described. There are so many factors that cause disease and gun violence is a disease. And there's so many factors. And that's the part that I think we struggle to deal with because we see the numbers rise. We feel the hurt when another light in our community is dimmed. But we can't rush to say, well, this happened because there aren't enough police officers. There isn't proof of that. You know, There was just a interesting report in the Mercury about the correlation between number of police officers on the streets and the gun violence. You can't draw a correlation. Interesting. So again, the reason why you can't is because There are so many factors. I remember last year when national papers were looking at the gun violence 
academic that's rising everywhere in the country. And I remember this one story in Kansas City where this man who is uh, you know, spending his life as a mentor and a mechanic never did not have a single incident on his criminal, didn't have criminal history whatsoever, and was at a gas station. And this random other guy who was pumping gas, we never saw before, within like two minutes of these dudes locking eyes, guns are out and a man is dead. You know, these are the type of incidences that are happening throughout the country. We cannot forget that this pandemic is the most traumatic incident of our recent historical memory. This is more traumatic than 9-11. What other major incident can I think of? Like Columbine? Like, tell us, what is another incident that has led to nonstop trauma for 20 months straight? where folks are more isolated than ever. Folks have less economic security than ever. Folks are literally dying because they hugged a loved one. When have we had a, such a traumatic time in our recent historical memory? We haven't. Mm-hmm. And so my focus is always on healing. We must find ways to nurture and heal the soul. Police officers do not have healing as a part of their training program. They don't have the way to walk in the community and to be a mentor, to be a confidant, to be a friend. Not to say that, A, if we're dealing with acute issues and we we know that this issue is increasing right now, police is always going to be a short-term solution that is never going to actually eradicate gun violence. We know that other countries do not deal with these violent, the violence that we deal with, but, and it's not just related to gun control. We know that, or gun safety, as we like to say. Our communities deal with rampant institutional inequities that continue to drive people to desperate means. And other countries, in addition to gun safety policies, they also have created safety rails so that people are not driven to the most extreme desperations. So these issues are multifactorial. And it should just be very telling that we actually live in the most militarized police state in the entire country. And yet we have the biggest gun violence issues in the I mean in the entire world. And we have the biggest gun violence issues in the entire world. And I just wish that folks could like slow down, especially our mayor and our city council and to be thinking really holistically, I am not going to be one to say, here's what we need to do for the next six months, and this is the only right answer. But it does feel like right now, folks are really trying to find a lot of hope in short-term solutions Hmm. and not giving ourselves permission to see the nuance and to really be setting the framework for healing that will ultimately be the lasting impact. That's fascinating and a great transition to one quick follow-up I have here. Because I think the the short-termism piece that you just mentioned resonates with people. I think that's how a lot of people feel about not just city of Portland, I think state government even. Like we've been kind of in short-termism for throughout the pandemic and with like shiny solutions that make it seem like, oh, this is what we could do. And there's been pretty significant progressive pushback on People for Portland. Our listeners are probably familiar. People for Portland is an, what is it? It's, 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 a, it's a technically a nonprofit organization. C4. It's an advocacy group. Advocacy group C4. So they have received really big checks from some folks we know, some folks we don't, but mostly, mostly wealthy Portland interests 
and they're proposing a set of solutions to homelessness, policing, basically to bring Portland back is what they say. You, Cameron, have lived here for, I'm not sure, how long have you lived in Portland? 12 years. You lived in Portland for 12 years. What do you make of people for Portland and their mm-hmm. approach to solving the challenges that we're facing? It's funny, <laughs> just we're talking about this yesterday on our podcast, Your Neighborhood Black Friends. And I would say I have an opinion that some folks can be surprised about. And for me, People for Portland is a group like many groups that have been involved in our political processes. And I definitely don't agree with all of their positions. And I definitely believe that money has a corrupting influence in our politics and that all organizations like People for Portland should be bound to the same transparency rules and that we don't have enough transparency. But at the same time, I also believe that pinpointing people for Portland as being the scapegoat for all of the frustration, all of the brokenness of our political systems, to me, honestly feels a little flavor of the month. Mm. And it's this new group that is pushing for this issues in a new way. Business communities and other, you know, private interests have been pushing for these interests for a long time. They're just doing it through a new name and a new structure. So for me, I prefer to debate the issues. I think that there is great opportunity for us to continue to be pushing for data-driven and evidence-based solutions. And I believe that those solutions will always have strength and merit and resiliency, no matter how much money a group tries to throw at at an issue. Our community needs to be more civically engaged. And for me, I just want to see the city of Portland invest more in real community engagement. I actually found it really interesting that people for Portland was actually doing public polling and posting the results. And The reality is that many politicians use polling themselves, but we never get to see the results. And I would really love to see the city help to balance power by doing more to actually capture the pulse of our residents, hear how they feel about these issues and to share those views publicly. And that is going to really be a rising tide so that every person has more of a chance to weigh in on these issues. So for me, yeah, I think People for Portland is a group and I I don't agree with a lot of things that they do. Uh, The the most recent thing that's been really head scratching has been the billboard campaigns. And so they've been posting out billboards with basically like, remember when New York Times used to say Portland was good and remember when you could get a coffee in downtown Portland and a bunch of stupid things. And it's just delusional. So let me say that people for Portland is literally being delusional because how can all these things be true that Portland is this miserable place that everybody hates and yet nobody can buy a goddamn house here. Hopefully I can say goddamn. (laughs) People keep moving here. Our population continues to grow. So no matter what Trump has said or Fox News or people for Portland has said about Portland being this dump and this Antifa paradise, people won't stop moving here because the quality of life is great, that there is opportunity here, even in the middle of a pandemic. 
Yes, our downtown is going through some times, but what downtown is not? We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Downtowns are going to get hit the worst. But I'm out here on the east side. I've been going to all the different corridors from Mississippi to Alberta to Hawthorne. Our neighborhoods, our arterials are thriving and people still love to be here. And the thing that people hate the most is that COVID is stopping them from enjoying the city that they love. So I think people for Portland in some ways is delusional. I don't think their campaign is gonna be successful. So I'm glad that they are wasting money on billboards because uh, that's what they get to do. <laughs> I haven't heard of the billboards, but that the vibe based on what you just said is very make Portland great again is what it sounds like, which is like, ooh, <laughs> little sketch. Yeah, so what my, my question was actually gonna be if you were optimistic or pessimistic about Portland, which you sort of just had answered. But kind of going back to what you were saying, it sounds like obviously there is, you know, some changes basically that you would can, want can to I see. Can I clarify it. that? Can I clarify my, my position on Portland? Yeah. I am optimistic in humanity. I'm optimistic in this earth. I believe that we are experiencing a lot of trauma as a collective humanity. And part of that trauma does force us to reflect does force us towards healing. I do believe that we have a moral arc of the universe that's bending towards justice. And I believe that moral arc also goes through Portland. And in the last year, we might've seen the quote unquote worst of Portland, but we also saw the best of Portland. Portland captured the national and international imagination when it came to racial justice. You know, being the widest major city of our size, and yet here we are together, all races, taking up space in ways that have never happened before and aligning that space that we've taken with real concrete action, that we've seen historic policies passed in the matter of months. Portland's done a lot of amazing things. Not to say that we haven't taken steps back, but I challenge people for Portland and any other naysayers to be holistic and thinking about what's happened in Portland in the last year. Within the context of a global pandemic, I think we've done a lot more right than we've done wrong. Yeah, what are, I, I'm just sort of curious, like what are some of those major successes that, that you would point to or that, that, that you would want to point people to in terms of what's been done? Yeah, the most important would be the ballot measure that I believe 84, if not higher, percent of voters passed for the historic uh, police oversight body that has real teeth. Mm. That is really big for Portland. It is going to restructure accountability for public safety as we know it. Pretty much the independent police review, which is within the city auditor's office, which has been effect ineffective since it was started, is pretty much going to be sidelined. And this new body that will be independent of city council, of the city auditor, and its budget will be tied to the police force, is going to be able to recommend policy changes for the police bureau, will be able to recommend and enforce disciplinary action for police officers. That's a really big deal. I would also say that Portland has done a lot in terms of, and the state as well, ushering resources for equity. This pandemic has been very unfortunate in really jeopardizing any of the small gradual steps that we've made towards closing the racial wealth gap. And Portland and the state of Oregon 
has done a lot to dedicate real funds to Black, Brown, Indigenous, or Oregonians from our statewide immigrant or undocumented workers, basically unemployment insurance fund, from the Oregon CARES Fund, which is the $62 million investment for Black Oregonians. On the local level, a lot of different initiatives from our Black Resilience Fund at, at Brown Hope, which raised now over raised $3 million in counting for, for Black Portlanders across the region. Um, and other groups like Equitable Giving Circle, which um, was literally just founded last year and has raised, I believe, up to $2 million so far to serve a Black, Brown, Indigenous Portlanders as well. A lot of different initiatives that have come out of the groundworks that um, really just have legs to do lasting work. I'd also say we saw a groundswell and diversity in our elections. Uh, the number of state senators and city commissioners and other elected officials coming from diverse backgrounds, politics is more diverse than ever. So I think there are just too many examples. We're just touching really the tip of the iceberg of progress that Portland's made in the last year. That's a really strong counter narrative that I feel like doesn't break through at the national level, which is interesting. Um, I guess it's easier to sensationalize negative than than positive, but it's interesting to think about. And it kind of that's actually kind of a good transition. But that was really just Trump. That's that was the issue is that this narrative was made by one person who unfortunately was in the right position to scapegoat an entire city, and we're still dealing with the shockwaves of that. The reality is that one Trump's tactic failed. So then I wish that people from Portland realize that they're jumping on the bandwagon of a tactic that literally failed because it is not true. Even when people want to rant or whatever, guess what? Tell somebody to go move to California or go move to Florida, <laughs> go move whatever. If they hate Portland that much, they ain't going to do it. I mean, tr- no matter how frustrated they are, Portland has a great quality of life. Yes, we have our issues here, but Portland has done well during this pandemic to try to show our best selves and to emerge from this pandemic still with our core spirit intact. And I do believe that. And I guess an interesting question too is like, it's interesting that people for Portland would use, I haven't seen the billboard, but like something the New York times used to report, like, I wonder why, how much does the city's reputation matter? Like, I guess it matters maybe for economic development purposes, but if you're living here in Portland and your quality of life is good, you know, you enjoy your job, you've got good schools, but you know, Trump and or the New York Times and or Fox News and or whatever national institution is saying, wow, Portland is in shambles. I guess I like I don't know. I don't know that that would be a compelling message for Portlanders that like, oh, we need to save the reputation. But that is neither here nor there for this next question, which is it's about reparations, because it's an issue that you have spoken out on, got a lot of press. Um, I watched the, the straight talk interview where you and Senator Frederick were speaking about this. And you used the framing of, I think, truth, reconciliation, and healing is how you framed the issue of reparations. And we're talking about reparations specifically for the descendants of slaves in the United States. So I'm wondering if you've thought about what reparations might look like in terms of like a framework. Like, would this be, does this have to be a national issue? Is this something that Oregon could do at a state level? Are we talking about money? Are we talking about other sort of way, compensation with housing or college degree? Like, how do you think about the issue of reparations or are you mostly, I think you were speaking out on HR 40, which is mostly like, let's have the conversation. Let's stop not talking about it. But I'm curious what you're thinking, how far your thinking has gone on reparations in terms of a framework. 
Well, Ben, you love asking easy questions. Questions. <laughs> really, only have an hour. For it. um, it's true. I it's a talent. Talk about reparations for days, and what I will first say, reparations, which really, if the word was drilled down to just one word as a definition, it means healing. That is the what reparations means. So I will say my brain, my thinking, logically, I understand why reparations is a controversial issue in my brain. I can see it. I, I've seen the polls. I, I know and I read that it's controversial. When people tell me they don't agree with it, I know that they're telling me they don't agree with it. But in my heart, in the moral compass of my soul, I don't understand the controversy of reparations. And I will never, on a moral basis, understand why healing is controversial. We live in a country with a really rocky history. That is a fact. Yeah. No matter how much we want to ignore it or not admit it, it is there. We're like an alcoholic who doesn't want to admit they have a problem. That is it. We're dealing with 200 years of an addiction to injustice and trauma that we would rather be sick than to admit it. And, you know, this hurts us, but this is hurting every generation that's coming after us. So when I think of reparations, I don't think of it as like some penalty to somebody that someone's got to be punished. For me, it is an investment of love, healing, and hope for our future generations. I believe that we can and that we must have a future some tomorrow where our youth are at school and they're like, wait, what? There was slavery and oh, what? They went 200 years with all these issues with like housing inequities and mass incarceration and police killing, you know, people of different skin colors. That happened in this country? How? I want that to be a reality right now that it's not. And because we refuse to actually commit to healing. And so reparations means healing. And we can, it can manifest in any way. But what HR 40, which has been introduced, I believe, since 1979 or oh, wow. Yeah, it's been around know. for a while. Okay. Um, it is to establish a commission for our federal government to actually be able to research the issue to actually put a number behind what the vile institution of slavery cost the descendants of enslaved Black people. We just want facts. We want the facts. We can measure how much labor, how much life was stolen from enslaved Black people and how all of the other institutions that came after slavery continue to increase a reverse in social mobility. So we're talking about Jim Crow laws. We're talking about redlining policies, predatory lending, talking about mass incarceration, war on drugs, all of these things that unfairly targeted black people. And yes, all these things happened because of slavery. It's not like you just wave this magic anti-slavery wand and all the slaves were free and then they're all equal to their landowners. And yet people somehow believe that. You know what actually happened after slavery was over? One, Black folks didn't get guano. <laughs> I don't know if I can cuss. <laughs> they didn't get guano. And then we had Manifest Destiny, where a bunch of the white 
plantation owners who lost the slaves were actually able to move out west and get free land and mess up the west. So even after we got freed, we didn't get anything. And the folks who lost their property, they still got more property. <laughs> and now we're at a time where this country got to where it is because black folks toiled on the land. And yet we own what less than a percent of rural land in the country. This is real, this is real y'all. So we need healing and we need to be able to actually examine it with facts to know what was lost and what we can do to get to the future. And so I believe that we don't need to wait for the federal government to do something for reparations. Every community has its own legacy. Oregon, which we like to think of ourselves a little absolved because we didn't have slavery in Oregon, but we didn't have black people either. Yeah. And the reason why we didn't have black people was because of slavery. Literally the policies that we created to exclude black folks and Chinamen and all the folks was to avoid the slavery debate. And so, yes. And so you're, what you're referring to, I think, is when the Constitution was created in Oregon, it explicitly prohibited Black yeah. people from being citizens of this state. Yeah. So all the things that have happened since then, whether that has been the redlining, whether that's been the sundown laws, Vanport, all the things related to gentrification and urban renewal, all of the devastation that's happened in Oregon to Black, Brown, Indigenous folks, all of that is because of Oregon's original dream of being a whites only utopia. So even in Oregon that technically did not have legalized slavery, we have reparations work to do. So uh, about Evanston, Illinois, which was really the first city to get national attention for a policy on reparations, their reparations policy is actually based on the war on drugs. And they use marijuana tax revenue to support black communities who were unfairly targeted during the war on drugs. So yes, reparations, again, it means healing. And we can look at a suite of harms that have happened in our historical record, pick one and do something about it. So real quick follow-up before we transition to Brown Hope. When you think of reparations then, are you thinking purely in, in economic terms, in terms of like financial transfer of you know, government to harmed individuals? Or are you thinking it's something, I don't know if the right term would be like emotional healing or like community building. What does reparations include when you're speaking to that word? Mm -hmm. It literally can mean anything. Reparations can mean anything. And we've seen that happen where universities who benefited from slave ownership have done scholarships. We've seen... For example, let me think of another example. There have been banks who've done reparations work as well. There have been, like Evanston, Illinois, their reparation program is based off of creating long-term sustainable housing for Black folks. So reparations can take multiple forms. Thinking about South Africa that you know had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that form of reparations included so much in terms of dialogue, in terms of uh, you know, public testifying in terms of real accountability that wasn't just a financial transaction. But that being said, despite reparations having the ability to exist in multiple forms, we cannot ignore the fact that we're talking about this because Black people were treated as property and as property were used to build profit. 
And that profit has been channeled into creating these vehicles of extreme wealth inequality in our country. And in order to reverse course, we're going to need to do something about that. And I don't believe that reparations means that we're going to find random people, white people on the street and pick them up by the ankles and shake them. So <laughs> I believe that it will involve a targeting of areas where wealth has been concentrated. And I believe by us being able to distribute that toxic concentration of wealth will actually rise all boats, including those of poor white folks. So I do believe that if we were able to allow ourselves to examine reparations without getting so defensive, because that's the immediate thing. I didn't own slaves. We know that, dummy. <laughs> Why are you talking about what we already know? You think we brought you here because we thought that you owned a slave in your basement? Get out of here. Well, we but at the but at the same time, like one of the things that struck me in the KGW piece mm-hmm. is Senator Frederick has a picture of him with his grandfather, mm-hmm. who actually was a slave. Like yeah. people think this is like so long ago. They're like, oh my God. It's like, no, this was actually not that many generations ago. <laughs> the harm would be passed along many, many generations, let alone from grandfather to grandchild. I mean, like, come on. Anyway, I appreciate your your comments there. And I think that was very thoughtful and well-spoken. Titus, I'll hand to you for the, the and, last category. Yeah. And so Cameron, obviously, well, that issue has clearly stalled in Congress for a very long time. I want to talk about some of your activism, which is, I would say, clearly making waves, but also actually having change, right? Things are actually happening. So Thank you, Alex. Uh, can we talk a little bit about Brown Hope? And uh, I was actually reading the NPR article about it. And one of the things I thought was most interesting was it didn't seem like you had sort of like a grand strategy for this organization. You just posted on Facebook and were like, hey, you know, we have funds, you know, will you consider donating funds for people who need help? And then clearly it turned into a fairly large organization. I think that you said last year your budget was in the millions of dollars, which is very impressive for a small nonprofit organization having owning a business and working mostly with nonprofits. I know that's not an easy feat. So congratulations on all the success you've been able to have with that. But could you kind of, what was the idea behind it? And then what are you, what are you all doing right now? Yeah. So are you talking about Black Resilience Fund? Yeah. Black Resilience Fund. And then also just kind of, maybe we'll talk about it in like uh, Cameron world as a whole in terms of like the different buckets that you're kind of working in. Yeah. So a Black Resilience Fund was launched last year after the murder of George Floyd and I remember at the time, you know, my first reaction to George Floyd's murder was to be jaded. This was not the first time that I had ever heard the words, I can't breathe. Eric Garner, 2014. This was not the first time that we saw a Black man's life slowly taken right before our very eyes. We just saw that with Armand Aubrey literally just months prior. There was nothing new whatsoever to me about this moment. And I, having been a Black Lives Matter activist since Black Lives Matter was a term, had no reason to believe that this moment would be any different, but it was. And I could see that pretty quickly within the first week. And I was just getting inundated, flooded with text messages and phone calls and emails from white allies, you know, asking me if I was okay, asking me if I needed anything. And I actually started trying to Google to see if there was like a medium article saying, check in on your black friends that I didn't know. (laughs) Y'all like, damn, like they be killing us all the time and nobody ever calls. So I almost turned my phone off, but I realized I was privileged enough, you know, with a house 
technically I quit my job, so I was jobless, but you know, still okay. I did not need any immediate support, but I knew plenty of black folks who did. And these are the black folks who did not have the luxury of having so many well-intentioned white friends. So I went to Facebook and I said, hey, if you have anything to spare, I know black folks who are in need, reach out to me, I'll send you my Venmo, my Cash App, whatever, and I'll make it happen. And you know, fortunately, I've done this work um, intentionally for a very long time and folks knew to trust me. And within that first day, we raised $11,000, which is something I never would have expected. That's wild. And the next day I was like, okay, well, I know people are gonna find out I have this money and it's gonna run out. So, you know what? I, I definitely don't wanna keep doing this where I'm just like sending all these text messages all the time. Like it felt like I was on the stock exchange because all I'm doing <laughs> is getting texts and sitting texts, wants and needs. But the exception is unlike the New York Stock Exchange, I actually help people. And so I was like, well, I've got to do something different. I know Alex is loving this right now. <laughs> Alex is like, oh, no, no. Take that capitalism. Boom. <laughs> and <laughs> I just make a GoFundMe. And again, this isn't like I had some strategic retreat and was, you know, doing like focus groups to come up with the name. I was like, okay, it's a fund. It's for black people. So it's a black fund. And what do we, what's the outcome? Resilience. Boom. Put it out there. 55,000 that the first day, the next day, so over crazy. 155. The day after that, even more. I never would have imagined how far we came. I remember on the 28th day, the day that we raised that $1 million, I called my mom and I was crying, which I'm a crybaby. So newsflash, <laughs> that's not a big deal, but she answered. And again, my mom and I, we don't have the best relationship, but I love her. And she, more than anyone else in this world, knows what I've gone through. And I call her and I'm crying. And she's like, what's wrong? I said, nothing's wrong. She's like, why are you crying? And I said, I've spent the last 30 years of my life struggling, toiling, and always clawing to do something good for myself and do something better for this community. And I just raised a million dollars in 28 days. And it was the easiest wow. thing I had ever done in my entire life. I kid you not. Wow. I can't even find housing in 28 days, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pay my taxes in 28 days. I don't know. I can't think of many things that I can do in 28 days. And yet, with the help of this community, raised a million dollars in 28 days to support Black folks here. And we did it in a way so that every person could feel seen and be a part of the healing. And so we gave out micro grants of $300 because we wanted to support as many black folks as possible. We didn't want there to be a competition for resources. We saw people you know, helping their like booty calls sign up to get the money. Uh, one of my favorite <laughs> oh, stories, oh. <laughs> one of my favorite stories was this uh, older gentleman who, did not know how to download Zoom on his computer. And he went to Facebook asking for help. And one of his friends who got funded through Black Resilience Fund actually went over to his house and they did the interview together. You don't hear those type of stories typically in philanthropy. And we wanna think of, well, when you wanna help people, you think, oh, well, pay for their bills. But it's much bigger than that. Folks need a village. That's literally the way that mammals survive on this planet. Giving somebody rent assistance for one month is not gonna give them a village. 
you can find really creative ways to bring people together. We've done that through Power Hour time and time again, but we've also been doing that through Black Resilience Fund. I think our model is special. And I think our model is inspiring resilience in ways that many people don't think of. And I just continue to look forward to us building this space where every person has an invitation to get involved and every person has an invitation to benefit. That is a really beautiful place to uh, end this interview. But before we let you go, and first I have to say, I was expecting this to be funny and all over the place and you have uh, lived up to expectations. So congratulations. I only wish we had the type of time that uh, your podcast has. I was looking at the length. You all do long interviews on that podcast. Well, what we do is that we do an hour long interview with the guests and then we follow it up with the hot take. (laughs) The hot take, which is you and your (laughs) co-host kind of debriefing. Taking fools of ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, let's actually talk about that too. So, Thank you for coming. And also, if there's a listener who wants to learn more about you or follow your work or maybe support the Black Resilience Fund or listen to your podcast, et cetera, this is your opportunity to make a plug. How can they follow your work or learn more? Well, I actually don't like stalkers, so please don't follow me. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, we are a community effort. Please, please, please find a way. I hope that something in this interview challenged you or inspired you. We invite people from all backgrounds to be involved in the work of Brown Hope. Go to our website, brownhope.org. We're on the Insta, we're on the Twitter, we're on the LinkedIn. Please find a way, whether that is being a donor, being a volunteer, signing up for our newsletter, sharing the website with somebody else. Find a way to be part of this Brown Hope family. Our mission is to plant and nurture seeds for racial justice. We're living in a time where, unfortunately, cycles around this work change. Sometimes there's exciting times where people care about racial justice. Sometimes there are disappointing times where people do not care. But we are planting seeds. And that means that that seed is in the soil. So even when the sun is not shining, or the rain is not falling, that seed is going to be there under the right conditions. And so I just want to tell people, any time you spend with Brown Hope is time that is well spent. It is time that you're nurturing these seeds of justice with us. Go to our website, brownhope.org. And please, please get involved. That should have been on uh, our local NPR station. Um, Thank you, Cameron. (laughs) And thank you to our local listeners uh, for your support. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and subscribe to Cameron's podcast too, your neighborhood black friends. Um, But either way, we appreciate your support and uh, we'll see you next week.